The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. He was continuing us on in this study that we have been going through on field notes for the Christian life, of observations and notes as we consider what does it mean to live the Christian life. Uh, Peter would have said, how do you live a distinctively Christian life in a distinctively non-Christian world? James picking up on on that same idea and building on it uh, of going, how is it then that you take the grace of God that has been given to us, implanted in us, Uh, the salvation that we've received through faith in Christ as a gift, how then do we take that and live it out? Because it can't just sit there. It can't just be a belief system that we have, uh, an insurance policy that we have to get into heaven that has absolutely no impact on this life that we live now. Some of you have that notion. You want to have Jesus, but you don't want to have him affect you too much. You want to have the hope of salvation, uh, but you only want God to intervene into your world. The Really, the only times that you deal with God are when something goes bad that you blame him. Or when something gets difficult and you ring your bell and you, and you treat him like Jeeves. You treat him like the butler to say, now I need some help. I'd like you to enter back in. And as soon as you get it going and you fix everything, it's okay for you to leave. But just stay close by. So that when I need you again, I can ring the bell and you'll come back into my life. But in the interim period, please just leave me the heck alone. James would go, you can't live that way. He would say, there, there is a, that is a total misunderstanding. And the person who would try to live that way, he would challenge and say, you're really, you are living functionally as a non-believer. You were living functionally as an atheist or an agnostic. You have some semblance of a belief system of a God, but it is not the biblical God. Because if you believe in the biblical God, the God described and given to us by his own words through the 66 books of the canon that are preserved for us by his spirit, and we read today and we study today, if you knew and encountered that God through Jesus Christ, it would radically change your life. You would not be the same. Your neighbors would know that you're a believer. Your neighbors would recognize, uh, your peers on your campuses and in your, uh, in your schools and in your workplaces, they would know something was intrinsically different about you because of your belief system. Most of us are trying to make it through with bringing as little attention to ourselves as possible in the spiritual realm. James is saying it's just the opposite. And this week he picks up on, last week we talked about and Doug did such a great job on saying too often we plan and we plan without having God in the mix. Well, I've got this set up and I've got this set up and here's my plan and oh God, I'd really like you just to bless it instead of saying, God, what is it that you would will for me? What is it that you would determine for me? What is your desire for my life, for my today, for my tomorrow and for my eternity? And then I will shape my decisions based on your will. We've been picking on Doug this week in every email we send to him. We're going to have a meeting at 6 o'clock, if the Lord wills. Uh, and so it's not that. It's not a little pejorative joke. It's really saying, I don't know what tomorrow holds. I'll make some plans, but I will submit them to the Lord's plans. And if he determines to change them, I will celebrate the change. We get upset when we've determined that our plans are better than God's plans, right? Isn't that why you were most upset as a child? 
with your parents because you had determined in your uh, brilliance, in your infancy and teenage years and adolescent years and all of those, and even into your 20s, you had determined that you knew best for you, and mom and dad said, no, that's not best. And basically what you were saying was, I know better than you. Well, we still do that with God. And that's what James was challenging us through. Now, this week, James picks up on that, and he says, now, listen, folks, some of you have gotten so confused about this that you have determined that what will make this life not only bearable, but will actually save you, that will redeem you, is your wealth in this world. And you are doing whatever it takes to hold that wealth to the abuse of other people. And so he has this incredibly stark warning for the wealthy and to the rich. And then underneath it comes in the second part of chapter 1, the first half of chapter 5, excuse me, in verses 7 through 12, he comes to those who are being oppressed. And he says, now listen, God hears your cry. He hears you and he's going to make everything right. So this sermon this morning may feel a little disjointed, but basically it's going to begin with a strong warning. Now, generally, by the way, this is why I like to preach through books like James. Because in a culture like Hilton Head, which is known to be generally affluent, there, there are areas of poverty and there are areas of difficulty, but generally uh, Hilton Head and Bluffton are considered affluent. The wealthiest uh, areas of our state and those kind of things. Normally, a pastor who's trying to see his church grow and develop in the middle of a building campaign where we're trying to raise $3 million, and by the way, God continues to work on that. Please be praying. Uh, Not only if you want to be a part of it, but uh, that there's still plans that are finishing up and they should be completed here in the next couple of weeks and hopefully we'll we'll break ground here in the next month or two. Uh, So still be praying. But it wouldn't make sense for a pastor who's in the middle of this situation to go right at the wealthy. Normally what you would do is go, hmm, let's see, what should I preach on? Should I get a a passage that goes right at the rich? No, let's pass on that one and move on. Well, that's what I love about having to preach through James. He says, Bill, you're going to have to address it. And what he's saying to you and to me, because quite honestly, in the world's economy, I'm incredibly wealthy. Even in our own national economy, I'm incredibly wealthy, and so are you. We've talked about that previously. Now we're going to hear a warning Not against wealth, but against the hope that we put in our wealth and in this world. And then these words of comfort for us that let us know that when things go difficultly, and when we have difficulties in this life, that God not only hears us, but he acts on our behalf. And there's the hope of his return sitting right in front of us, influencing everything. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me over to James chapter 5. And look at the first 12 uh, verses there, and we're going to hear together God's word. I'm going to try something a little differently this morning. Historically, within the church, when God's word was read, the people stood out of respect uh, for the words of the king. So I'd invite you to stand uh, this morning out of respect for God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. 
and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits with, for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. Amen. You may be seated. So the first section there is difficult language, isn't it? Uh, That's not language that any of us want to hear because the first thing that we're going to see uh, this morning is a very clear warning of the dangers of wealth. A clear warning of the dangers uh, of wealth. It's easy to see. It's easy to pick out. He makes it abundantly clear in the first six verses. But I want you to hear this. What James isn't attacking is wealth per se. He's not attacking and saying that no one should be wealthy. There's a theology that is built off of James chapter 5, and it's called liberation theology. It's Marxist in its background. And in many places in Central America and even into South America, it has taken deep root. And this liberation theology takes these first six verses of chapter 5, and it says no one should be wealthy, therefore all wealth should be redistributed and given to all people. That's not what James was saying. What James was saying was those of you whom God has gifted, those of you who have been successful within the world and have gained wealth, be careful not to let it seduce you, not to allow it to lead you away from the true Savior, from the true King, so in it, it becomes your pseudo-Savior and it becomes your ruler in your life. That's what James is warning about. And he's challenging us, and it's a very subtle uh, movement away. It's good to say, I just want to provide for my family. It's good to say that I just want to live and be comfortable. It's nice to say, I want to have things. Those aren't bad in and of themselves. But when they have to be met in order for us to be contented in this life, when we're willing to do whatever it is that we need to do in order to gain them, to crush other people, to have business practices uh, that uh, go against God's law, that we abuse others in order to gain what we have. And then when we have it, we hold it so tightly that we are unbelievably uh, frugal, which is a positive thing to be frugal. But James would say, but you're not generous. And when you have lost your generosity, that means that your wealth has moved into a place of being a savior for you. For a person who cannot be generous is a person who has put their hope in their wealth. It's a good thing for us to consider as we look at generosity within the church and around to those who are near us. So look at what James is saying. And the list of accusations is very clear. 
And he says first, here's my first accusation, verses 2 and 3, that you have lived and have selfishly hoarded your wealth. You've brought it in and you've kept it for yourself and you hold it and count it. That you have, in verse 4, secondly, that you have defrauded your workers. That you haven't paid them what you should pay them. uh, That you have taken from them. There are places still in the mountains of North Carolina where migrant workers go in. And they live in some of the most repulsive uh, living conditions. Uh, That they're brought in by these landowners who own the apple orchards and some of the other orchards in the mountains of western North Carolina. And they're abhorrible. And they pay the person $10 a day, but they charge them 15 in order for the privilege of working on their land and staying in these deplorable uh, conditions. And then these individuals go to their wonderful churches on Sunday morning and they tithe their money to the Lord, the landowners. That's what James is talking about. He's saying, you've defrauded the worker. You haven't paid them what they're due. You can get all caught up in the minimum wage debate. That's not what he was talking about. But what he is saying is paying the person for what they've done. He says, you've defrauded these workers. That you've then begun, in verse 5, to follow a self-indulgent lifestyle. That doesn't need much explanation. And that you've begun to oppress the righteous, in verse 6. That you've condemned and murdered even the righteous person. And they don't resist you. Probably you could say there and change that language to you have condemned and murdered the righteous person because they don't resist you. So here are these accusations that are there. And James uses incredibly strong Old Testament language. When he speaks and he says, come now you rich, weep and howl. For someone who was reading this and who would have come out of a Jewish background, most of the readers of this were former Jews who had come in and out of the synagogue and had now come into the church and and understood Messiah, they would have gone, wow, that word weep and that word howl. Those are Old Testament words that are literally only used in the prophets when when they're speaking of judgment coming upon God's people or upon people. And so he was using this, and he was saying, this misery that is coming upon the rich refers not to an earthly or temporal suffering, but he's saying it's a condemnation and a punishment that God will mete out on the end, on the end, the end day. And you see, interesting, the word miseries that he uses there is plural, probably, as one commentator put it, accentuating the degree of the misery that will come to them at judgment If you've ever read Dante's Inferno, and he would speak of those things, of of looking at at the punishments that come with the lack of generosity and the accumulation of wealth in this world, he was picking up on this idea. You find also in other places that the word rich or wealthy is sometimes even synonymous with the word unrighteous. You find that in Proverbs chapter 10 and Proverbs 14. And then interestingly, James is picking up on the words of his brother, Jesus, in Luke chapter 6, verses 24 and 25, when he warns the rich and the wealthy and pronounced a woe upon them. And he said, their consolation in this world will be replaced with mourning and weeping in the next. You see, he's saying, be careful. There are consequences to the actions that you are taking in this life. And so we need to then consider our actions. We need to consider what we're doing. And we need to ask of ourselves, have we replaced Christ our Savior? Have we replaced God as our King with the things of this world? And that the object of our trust 
is in this wealth. And he's saying this stuff will not last. Look at it, what he says. He says, look, your garments are already rotted and your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you. He's basically saying, listen, you're going to go in and it should take you back as a good Old Testament scholar, which I know all of you are. How many of you have read Haggai lately? That's what I thought. Well, go read Haggai. Uh, because what Haggai has to say, and I think we looked through Haggai last year uh, together, so I'm sure it's fresh on your minds. Uh, you remember all the sermons. Uh, I had somebody come to me this morning and say uh, that they didn't miss me last week because they thought I was here. So I get it. I know where I fit in the whole uh, scheme of things. Uh, but if you were to go back and look at Haggai and consider Haggai, this is what Haggai in judgment says to those who put their trust in wealth. You reach into your pockets for your gold and you find that your pockets have holes in them. You go and you fill up your wine bags and your casks with wine and they're empty at the end of the day. You put in tin bushels and they come up as one. He's basically saying you think that you're accumulating wealth and it is rotting away right in front of you. It cannot sustain your life. That's what James is trying to say. That's the warning that he's trying to give to all of us. He's trying to say, folks, do you realize that this world and the gifts and the wealth and the riches of this world were never designed to sustain your life? They were designed as a means to an end by which you could accomplish God's purposes. And what sin has done is it has turned it around and we've turned it into a way to accomplish our own purposes. That's what James is hitting at. And he's saying these very things that you are trusting in, they're not going to last. You are piling up wealth in an age that is near to its close. I was listening to the radio to NPR this morning, and there was a Supreme Court case that basically, in the Supreme Court case that was decided this week, they basically said of a technology that this technology can't be used anymore. It was one of being able to get online basically and buy and look at local news and of the main uh, NBC, ABC and all and to buy those things. And they said, no, you can't do that. And I can't remember that company's name, but it would be silliness for me to go out and to fill my portfolio with that company's stock because that company will not be around very much longer. That's what James is saying. Uh, James is saying, you are buying stock in a company that isn't going to be around much longer. You are building in a wealth in this world, and the day is coming very shortly when this world will end. And everything in this world is going to be torn up, burned down, and recreated by Christ. And the only things that are going to stand in the new heaven or new earth are the things that are redeemed by him and his own and what they have. He's saying, so it's the height of silliness. I was walking on the beach yesterday, and, and I love, I saw some good friends of ours on the beach, and I've seen them twice on the beach with this. She's reading a, a novel, he's reading a business journal. Because we want to know where our things are, and that's good to study, because you want to be uh, aware of your stocks, you want to be aware of your portfolios, you want to be aware of your real estate holdings, all of those things. So you might want to also be aware of your spiritual holdings. What does your spiritual earth, uh, bank account look like? What James is saying is if you're building in wealth and thinking that's going to sustain you into the next life, be careful because there's going to be a crash and it's all going to disappear 
So wisdom would demand, don't keep building in and piling up wealth in an age that is nearing its close. And finally, his final grievance against the wealthy is this. Because of your accumulation of wealth, because of the way that you're viewing these transitory and unreliable resources, you are actually depriving others of life. We don't see it because it's, it's hidden from us. But what James is saying is when you hoard wealth, when you hoard all of your stuff, what you are doing is you are keeping life from others because you're taking a resource that God has. Do you know how God's economy works in this world? Do you know what the currency of God's economy is in the United States? Do you want to know what it is? It's a deep theological secret. It's the U.S. dollar. If you want to see poverty addressed within our country, it is going to take U.S. dollars to address the poverty cycle. And the U.S. dollars that God would like to use aren't the ones that are coming out of Washington, D.C. It's the ones that are coming out of houses of worship like this. God is saying, if my church, if my body, if my bride would release its wealth into this country, it would address the issues of poverty, it would address the issues of education, it would address the issues of the breakdown of the family, if my people wouldn't quit hoarding everything for themselves because they think that's what's going to keep them safe. That's what James is saying. Not to the extent of a libertarian theology. Not to Marxism. But of saying, out of your wealth, be generous. Out of your wealth, give. Because when you don't, you're withholding life from someone else. That kind of gets a little bit into the gut, doesn't it? I think about our own budget. I was thinking this week about what, how we live our life. Thinking, okay, where is my hope? Where is my trust? As you know, I've got one son going to South Carolina and one son going to Clemson. And, yeah, it's a divided house and all that stuff, but I went to Presbyterian College, so I know who the true champion in the state of South Carolina is. It's the Blue Hose. And if you don't know what a Blue Hose is, that's your loss. Um, But that's my mascot. That's your pastor's mascot. And I've got one sticker on my truck uh, that says USC Dad. I want to get another one that says Clemson Dad, and then I'm going to do a little arithmetic that says USC Dad plus Clemson Dad equals broke. Um, because I look and go, my goodness. And, and we get caught up with everything. You get all the different, and then you look and you look around and you go, I don't have anything left to give. What James is saying is just consider. Consider, do you fall into any of these categories? And so it's a stark warning for those who have wealth. But then very interestingly, and I want to get to this, and I want you to hear this, Tied right to the underbelly of this warning is this incredible picture of hope for those who are being oppressed within the culture of that day and the culture of our day. What he says to those who are the workers in the fields who are being oppressed, to the ones who have no wealth, who have no voice, who have no status uh, within their society, he's saying, take courage. Endure to the end. Take heart. Your petitions are being heard by God. He is the righteous judge who is standing at the door, and he'll make all things right. So at the end, the second point, this is only going to be two points today. The first was that warning of wealth, and be aware of your wealth. Be aware of yourself within your wealth. 
And I don't want you to walk away from here feeling guilty about what you have. I want you to walk away from here being challenged to consider what you have. Because God uses the word constantly of stewardship, that we're to steward what we have well. That he gave it to us for a reason. That myself and the elders and leaders of this church have been stewarded this church. To use it not for our purposes, but for God's purpose. Parents, you have been stewarded children for a season of life to steward them well for God's kingdom and his purposes. We've been stewarded all of these things. You just ask the question, how are you doing in that? The second question then becomes, and it's an encouragement, and some of you need to hear this today. Be encouraged to be patient in the midst of suffering. To be encouraged to be patient in the midst of your suffering. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The therefore within this first thing we've asked and we've said and we've learned, when you see a therefore, you're supposed to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? So he's going, therefore, brothers, be patient until the coming of the... What's the therefore? It's basically saying this, the denunciation of the wealthy who prosper in this age. What he's saying then, the poor who suffer in this age will find peace in the age to come. He's saying it's just the opposite. If the wealthy have put all of their trust in their wealth, they are going to prosper in this life, but they will suffer in the life to come. But if you are putting your hope in Christ and you are suffering in this life, you are going to prosper in the life to come. So he's saying it it is the, the flip of it. It is the turning over of what we understand to be the way that it should be. And it turns it on its head. And he asks the question, I think first would be, what is patience? One pastor put it this way. What James is saying, I mean, you can put it positively. He's saying that patience is a spirit of serenity. It's a spirit of quietness under any circumstance. It's a spirit of fixedness and firmness and steadfastness that characterize your life. We could just sit there for a little while, couldn't we? So how many of you are patiently enduring? Look at how he puts it. A spirit of serenity. It takes me back to Seinfeld. Anybody seen the episode Serenity Now? Yeah, that's kind of how I am as a dad and as a, a husband and as a pastor. I just look some days and I'm like, ah, serenity now. Does serenity characterize your life? Spouses? Would serenity characterize your spouse? Kids? Would serenity characterize I wish there was a way to communicate to our animals and ask them, does serenity uh, characterize your owner? Uh, And for many of us, no, would be the answer to that. An interesting thing as an aside, when the Great Awakening happened, Jonathan Edwards found that men and women, when they came in contact with the Spirit and were so overwhelmed by God's presence, even went and repented to their farm animals. Because what they realized was 
If this gospel is true, it affects even the way I deal with the animals in the field. Wow. So does serenity characterize your daily walk with Christ in those ways? Do you have a spirit of fixedness, of firmness, and of steadfastness, a quietness under any circumstance? He's warning us against a spirit of restlessness, a spirit of irritability, a spirit of always complaining, always being unhappy, always being upset with the way things are and the way people are treating us. So he's warning us against impatience and he's exhorting us to patience. So again, consider your life. You're the best one. I'm not here to point it out to you. I'm not here uh, to tell you how you are. I'm here to ask you and to challenge you to ask is that, are you constantly complaining that everybody else is getting ahead and you're not? That everybody else has it better than you do? That things just are always stacked against you? That it's always those people and never me who are getting the breaks? That they're the ones who are getting everything and it's not me? And you're constantly anxious about all things? That you pace the floor and that you wring your hands and that you're worried constantly, uh, that your heart rate continues to go up, that you find and are looking constantly for ways to medicate yourself, that you're looking instead of to God and to his spirit, that you're looking to something else to give you peace. You know that's what addiction is. Addiction is giving yourself to another Lord and allowing it to control your life in the hope that you'll find this peace and this patience in your life. It can be a drink. It can be a smoke. It can be exercise. It can be pornography. It can be going to the gym. It can be good things that are used by, God, by sin for evil. He's saying, so if you don't have patience in your life, ask yourself, why not? And then where are you going to find it? If you don't have this peaceful, patient waiting on the Lord to come, what's going on? Well, we could sort of stop right there and just kind of rally around and circle the chairs and go, let's spend the rest of the day talking through this one. Because I know this much about you. I don't know you all personally, but I hear constantly and regularly from many of you that you're anxious, you're worried, you're concerned, you're fretting. And then when things don't go your way, when you've determined that there's something that you have to have and you don't get it, how do you respond? For some of you, you pout. For some of you, you get angry. For some of you, you shut down. Maybe you throw a pity party. Interesting that self-pity is the flip side of pride. It's the exact same thing as pride. Because what you're saying is, I'm not getting what I deserve, and therefore I'm going to pity myself. And so James is challenging these folks. They're saying, be careful. Don't slide into that. Yes, it's wrong that you've been defrauded. Yes, it's wrong that you've been abused. Yes, it's wrong that you haven't gained your wages. Yes, all of those things are wrong. But in the middle of these unfair circumstances that are beyond your control, have you ever found yourself in a circumstance that's beyond your control? Anybody? A few of you? Let's try that again. Has anybody found themselves in a circumstance that's beyond your control? I sort of find that daily. I mean, honestly, what do you really control about your life? You drove to church today with the assumption that everybody else was going to stay in their lane. Uh, Really? Can you control the fact of whether that person's going to stay in their lane and not drift over into yours? 
Lisa and I were going uh, out to dinner, was it last night? Yeah, we were on Leg of Mutton, which is probably the best named road on the island. <laughs> and a person pulled out of her neighborhood as we're driving down, and she has her phone on her ear, and she's pulling around, and evidently she decided that she forgot something in her neighborhood, so she did a massive U-turn right in front of us. And she just sort of headed right in. And we, like the godly people we are, prayed for her uh, and didn't complain uh, about that and didn't speak about ill about her. But I thought of that moment. That's totally out of my control. It's totally out of my control. Every day you are faced with circumstances that are out of your control. And some of them, in your estimation, aren't fair with the results that come. And what James is challenging you is, are you willing to patiently endure those things? And if you're not, you're probably putting your hope in something other than Christ. Because what James is saying is this, you have some assurances. And I'll be quick on these, but I want you to hear them. You can be patient and you can endure in this life because you have the assurance that the Lord is returning. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. What he's saying is live with the end in sight. Live with the view of eternity. We, we studied through Ecclesiastes together last year, and we were basically saying this, vanity of vanities, all is vanity if we live like everything is under the sun. But it's only when we recognize that there is a God who is above the sun who controls all things, and we live in light of that, that we can have a peace, that we can trust that Christ is returning. How many of you considered that today? I mean, you woke up this morning, you said, this could be the day that Jesus Christ returns to this earth. Am I ready to engage him? I haven't thought about that except because I'm preparing this sermon. I don't think that way. It's not natural and normal for me to, but what James is saying is if you want peace in this life and if you don't want to be the vengeful judge and you don't want to be the one who has to tear everybody else down to get them on your level, believe this. Jesus is coming back and he's going to make all things right. And it's going to be okay in the end. And some of you think that he's going to, you're going to get raptured out and some of you think you're going to stay and some of you don't understand any of that. Uh, and here's a great theological understanding of the end times. It's called pan-millennialism. Okay? You need to get this. It's pan-millennialism. And here's what it means. Some of you know it, right? It's all going to pan out in the end. Okay? Honestly. I don't know if you're going to get raptured out. I don't know if you're going to stay. I understand what I think the Scripture says on that, but it's not all that clear in certain places. So here's what I know. Jesus Christ is going to return one day. And when He returns, He's going to make all things right. He's going to say, if you suffered in this life for me, I will honor you in my new kingdom. If you lived your life daily for me and you were willing to put me above all else, I promise that I will put you above all else in my kingdom. I am coming back and I will make things right. You need to know that he's going to return. And you need to know that as a good assurance, not as an assurance of a teenager who's up to something and knows that daddy's coming home sometime this weekend. It's not that. It has that, that tinge to it. But what he's really saying is you should be excited. Dad's coming home. And when dad comes home, all things are going to be made right. So you have that assurance that he's going to return. Do you know how many people know when he's going to return? One. 
God the Father knows. You don't know when he's going to return, but James was writing, and all the New Testament writers wrote, thinking it could be at any moment. And we should live that same way of urgency. And then we have the assurance, not only that he's going to return, but we have an assurance that our cries are heard by the Lord. In verse 4, he says, They're crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters, those who are being oppressed, have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So what he's saying is this, there are times and it is legitimate and it is okay to cry out to the Lord. I don't ever want you to hear from this church and from this pulpit that I'm telling you just suck it up and get through. Just be quiet and move on. If you are suffering and you are hurting in this world, you have one who wants to hear from you. You have one who wants to say, I don't get cancer. I don't get unemployment. I don't get this death entering into my family. I don't get why I want to be married and I'm alone. I don't get why I want to have a child and I'm barren. I don't get any of this, God. I don't get why it seems that I can't get ahead, but God, I'm coming to you. And he's saying to you, I hear you. He's hearing you and he's listening to you. And so what he's asking is, would you... That's what prayer is, by the way. People think prayer is this whole complicated thing. It's just God's people laying out their hearts before him. Develop that prayer life. God, would you be here? Would you hear my cries? And he says he was. And then there's this great assurance that not only does the God of the universe hear you, but look at the language that he uses. He says, this is the Lord of hosts. Great language. He, he brings back this Old Testament language of the Lord of hosts. He says, I am the Lord of the, of the armies of heaven. And I promise you, when I come back, I not only have heard you, but I have the wherewithal and I have the strength and I have the resources to make it right. So if you're getting picked on uh, and there's a bully, there was a, there was a little boy in my neighborhood. And um, he, Johnny really was a crybaby. Everything, he would cry and he would cry. And, uh, and I remember one time, Johnny threatened. He said, if you pick on me, I'm going to get my big brother Jesse to come. And we're like, yeah, big brother Jesse, right. Well, we picked on him. And he ran down the street and we're like, there goes crybaby Johnny. He's going back to the street. This hulk of an individual <laughs> came up the street towards us. And you haven't seen fourth grade boys into action like we did because we met someone named Jesse Matthews that day. This was before all the tats were popular. This was in the 1970s. And this very large, tatted, long-haired dude came walking up and he said, who is it that's been picking on my little brother? Him? (laughs) Everybody pointing to everybody else. But that's kind of what it is. You have one who you're petitioning in heaven. And you're basically saying this in your petitions. Lord, the evil one, sin and the devil are coming against me and they're attacking me. And the fall and all of its consequences are all around me. I need to know that there's somebody greater than him and the Lord of the universe stands. And he says, oh, by the way, Satan, I took away the sting of death. I blew it apart. Go check an empty tomb. Go look at a cross. Go look at a throne that's standing in heaven and it's immovable and it's unshakable and that my kingdom is returning and when I return, Satan, you know your end. So know that you have a big brother, an elder brother who is there to defend you. That's good news, isn't it? 
that not only does he hear you, but he has the resources to defend and to carry through to fruition that what he promises to you today. And then finally, the assurance of this. God's going to judge all things rightly. He's going to make it up. That's why he says, guys, don't bicker. Don't get all caught up in it today. For the judge, the true judge, is standing at the door. Verse 9. And then finally, we are assured of blessing to those who patiently endure. Behold, verse 11. We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. God is saying to you this. There is a wealth that will never corrode. There is a robe of righteousness that will never be eaten by moths. There are streets of gold that will never be tarnished. Uh, There is for you uh, riches untold. And you can only get them through going to Christ, not to this world. So if you want to invest your life in something that will pay you back for eternity, what God is calling you to is invest in Him. And you'll never be disappointed. He says, I assure you of that. In your poverty in this life, there is wealth and riches forevermore in him. Let's pray.